0: Welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, EFG's weekly podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, I'm Deputy CIO and Global Head of Research, and today I'm very honoured to have with us Mary Rosenbaum, who's uh, from Observatory Group. Mary's been a long friend of EFG, and uh, we're very grateful for the relationship. She has some very insightful views, and I'm sure that uh, uh, she'll be ready and willing to share them with us in just a moment. Uh, Mary started her career at McKinsey uh, working uh, Uh, in Europe, Latin America and the US and has also worked as a senior economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. And uh, following that, she uh, worked for the G7 Group. So she's very familiar with the international setup and the setup of governments and central banks and, as I say, provides very insightful information on that. Uh, Mary, perhaps I could just ask you, what was it like working within the Federal Reserve System?
1: If we think about the kind of experiences you can get at the, the professional experiences you can get at the Fed, um, being in a research department is a very, it's a quite a privileged position because you have the um, opportunity to focus on current policy issues in an environment in which you're looking at them pretty rigorously. So you have colleagues who are doing basic research, um, the kind of research that you would expect to be published in very you know, high quality journals. But at the same time, on a day-to-day basis, you're looking at the data and you're helping your boss, who is the policymaker, think about these issues in a practical sense. So it's, I think it's a wonderful opportunity. Now there are other parts of the Federal Reserve System. In fact, the research part is probably by body count, the smallest part because there are people working in supervision bank supervision and regulation and payment systems issues um, so there's a, a wide range of professional opportunity there um, it, the research department there there that's where the rubber hits the road for monetary policy and being able to be part of it and my my great privilege towards the second half of my time at the Fed was that I was able to go to the uh, policy meetings, the FOMC meetings, which was a great um, opportunity to see how things really happen um, in person and how how issues and problems are sorted through, um, rather in a in a real way as opposed to a, a hypothetical or an abstract way.
0: Well, speaking about the FOMC, obviously. It's always uh, prominent in investors' minds, but particularly so at the moment, given the ongoing debate about inflation. Uh, Obviously, the the debate at the moment is centering on whether or not inflation is transitory and it's just going to wash out as the year progresses or if it's more permanent. What's your thinking on that?
1: My thinking is it, it remains to be seen because it's absolutely not obvious. So let me just give some context here. Coming out of the Great Recession, the previous cycle, most central banks, certainly the Fed, certainly the ECB, the Bank of England, um, the Bank of Japan were surprised that despite the massive monetary policy accommodation, that inflation remained very low and inflation expectations remained very low. And that even as labor markets became better utilized, there was a extremely inefficient transmission of any tightness in the labor market to broader prices. So th- this was the lesson. The lesson was even when labor markets are highly utilized, it's hard to get inflation going. So central banks are going to probably operate near the lower effective bound that is around close to zero, even central banks that are willing to implement negative rates, which are less constraining than a zero lower bound. Nonetheless, all of these central banks are going to have some sort of constraint. And that meant that when you, when inflation was lower than your target, you were at a terrific disadvantage because you had very little scope or shall we say room to ease rates. So you would want to avoid being below your inflation target. And that created this sort of assessment that the risks were asymmetric, right? Now the Fed's view was that this COVID shock was initially a disinflationary shock. Even though plenty of policymakers were saying, we're not sure what kind of inflation dynamics are going to emerge from this event, but right now it's disinflationary. The Fed's view has been the underlying inflation dynamic has been unchanged by this shock and the emergence from the lockdown. And everything we're seeing is really a very special environment in which we have had some supply constraints, a lot of interruptions and things like that. But that the underlying dynamic is going to reemerge. And so the inflation we see now probably is transitory. Now, you can't test that yet, because you're still in this sort of reopening phase. The supply chains are still suffering from disruptions. There is a lot of mismatch between demand and supply globally. There have been some structural shifts in demand that that aren't really related to, um, necessarily to um, fiscal or monetary stimulus. So not just the Fed, but especially the Fed is operating in this environment where it's assuming something, making a very strong assumption about underlying inflation dynamics in an environment in which you won't know until later if that is correct. Now, does the Fed have any influence over that? Do central banks have any influence over that? I think that for the reopening the influence is extraordinarily limited. So I think that it's too early to say but it is certainly dangerous because if the fed is wrong and the underlying inflation dynamic has been changed then it's going to be you know it's going to be far behind where it would want to be in terms of its policy position once it starts to raise rates. But again we we can't we don't know that yet.
0: So, are there any factors you think the Fed will be particularly sensitized to with regard to changing its inflation outlook?
1: I think there are some uh, factors about actual prices, and then then there's certainly inflation expectations. So, the factors about actual prices that are would perhaps help the Fed distinguish between these relatively inflation um, transitory effects and the more persistent ones would be that if you look at those areas of the economy, the prices in those areas of the economy that were subject to lockdowns or that have experienced the most um, obvious supply shocks and that as those are resolved, as those sectors reopen and as the supply chains are eventually smoothed out, whether or not the price the, the rate of price increase persists, right? So you can, in a sense, think about a price index and think about disaggregating it into a group of prices that are probably pandemic affected and those that are less so. And if the, if the increases of the pandemically affected goods and services continue to rise, even as we think of these structural issues as being resolved, that's, that is strong evidence against the Fed's view right on the other hand if those price increases slow down or stop which of course is not all going to happen at the same time even if it does happen then it tends to support the fed's narrative so this is fairly anecdotal the other thing to look at in terms of of what sort of scope the fed has and what sort of test is inflation expectations and i would emphasize that inflation expectations as variously measured. So obviously a high frequency measure would be the prices of break-evens. We're looking at the five-year, five-year forwards. And those are particularly helpful because they're high frequency and the participants in that market have a strong incentive to be correct. But it's not particularly discriminating because um, really what's being compensated for is both inflation expectations and inflation uncertainty. So as a signal, it's not all that clear. Then we have consumer surveys. Now, a number of the traditional consumer surveys in the US have demonstrated over time that they are so highly correlated with retail gasoline or retail petrol prices that, you know, they've really been discredited, shall we say. But there are some more recently specified surveys, several of them now supported by the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York in their reports on the survey of consumer expectations that have been designed to try to avoid the problems of that correlation between the way consumer expectations of inflation have been measured in the past. And then we have a third category, which is actual forecasts of inflation from professional forecasters. I would put more emphasis on the consumer surveys for the Fed because policymakers simply tell us that they do. Now, one of the helpful factors in the New York Fed's consumer surveys is that they look over multiple horizons. So there's a one-year horizon and a three-year horizon. Consumer expectations of inflation over both horizons have risen in the last year, but they've risen much more over the one-year horizon than over the three. So from the Fed's perspective, that is consistent with there being at least some substantial element of transitory price increase that people understand. Now it's not conclusive, but it's evidence. If if both of those horizons, if inflation expectations over both of those horizons continue to rise, that is going to be very difficult for the Fed because it's going to suggest that consumers um, have a different view of the underlying dynamic than the Fed is pushing. And if you lose the battle of inflation expectations, it's very, very hard to win the war.
0: Absolutely. Now, of course, market expectations of inflation are partly embedded in nominal government bond yields. And one of the you know, arguably conundrums of current market uh, features is that government bond yields are so incredibly low still. How do you square that circle? Is it just a technical reaction to vast amounts of quantitative easing, or is there something else going on?
1: I can't square it. I don't have what I consider to be a satisfying explanation. I mean, there, there certainly are some, in the very short term, there are some issues in the U.S. Treasury market about the, the pattern of issuance versus the pattern of spending that has really pushed down short-term rates that possibly could be resonating in the longer run rates. But I I offer that as a highly tentative, low confidence explanation that um, certainly won't be satisfying over a longer period. But I've, I've, I can't square it.
0: Well, it's uh, certainly a conundrum that's persisted for much longer than many people would have thought. Now, you know, speaking about policy and inflation expectations, uh, A closely related topic is the outlook for Fed policy, and that at the moment, that debate is centering on the taper, uh, the timing of uh, when the Fed will start to taper its asset purchases. What are your thoughts about that? That certainly seems to have been a more hawkish tone from various Fed, regional Fed presidents recently.
1: I think that we should distinguish the kinds of commentary we're hearing. I think broadly, Fed policymakers are saying the economy is making progress. And certainly the July employment report that was released uh, two Fridays ago, actually, I guess it was last week, I'm sorry, it was not quite a week ago, added to that perception. So it was a strong report. It wasn't all things to everyone, but it was a strong report. And so clearly the FOMC is in the midst of debating when they should taper and what sort of announcement they should make. And I believe there is a broad consensus on that, that it's probably there's probably be an announcement in the next few months that their confidence in the outlook is stronger. And I would say the one caveat that I would add is that more recently, of course, there has been some additional caution about the outlook associated with the spread of the Delta variant of covid and the extent to which that has some potential to disrupt economic activity. And so I think that that particular factor is really the only obvious one that might slow down the progress towards a taper this year. That's the one that we can see now. But I'm not saying it will slow it down, I'm just saying that it has the potential to do so. I certainly think that by the September FOMC meeting, which is the 21st and the 22nd of the month, there should be a great deal of evidence about whether or not the, this resurgence in infection numbers is influencing economic activity since the, it, it, will, it will have been several, several months old by then, all right? There's another group of voices on the FOMC that are making an additional argument. And that is that not just that the taper should begin soon, but that probably the taper of MBS should be faster than the taper of treasuries. I don't believe that debate is resolved on the FOMC. I'd say the the general view, and if I think the vote were today, this view would prevail, would be that the treasury purchases and the MBS purchases both contribute to market functioning, they contribute to a stronger recovery, um, and they both tend to support the housing market which is very strong in the US now, but not strong in the way it was overheated in 2004 and five and six. Now there appears to have been a structural shift in demand for housing. People want more room inside and outside and they're willing to pay for it. And that's pushing up prices. So there's there's not a strong view on the FOMC that running off the MBS faster would actually produce a better outcome. But nonetheless, there's a group, there's a handful of policymakers who are pushing that view. They're pushing pretty vigorously. And I think the view on the other side, which is that these things are approximately the same and we don't really have enough information about their relative impact to fine tune the taper, the pace of the taper of each. I think that's broadly held, but perhaps not as deeply held and that's why I believe that there's some risk that those arguing for a faster taper of MBS may end up prevailing. Like I said, if the vote were today, I don't believe it would prevail. Um, but, but if we think about the dynamics of a committee and the way consensus is formed, I would, I would say there's, that's where I would say there, there's some risk that the MBS might be, might be, run, might, might be tapered more quickly.
0: So a separate hot topic but somewhat related for markets at the moment is uh, the subject of the infrastructure bill that has recently passed and uh, we have this uh, three and a half trillion additional spending that the Biden administration is proposing that made some progress in the Senate last night. It's quite confusing for an outsider to think about the various technical stages that the bill has to go through. Could you just shed a bit of light on what, what has to happen to get that three and a half trillion passed?
1: So the, the, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill has passed the Senate, but not the House. And it needs to pass both to become a law and be signed by the president. Um, the second part of this, well, let's just call it a, it's sort of a, a package, if you will, of these two pieces. The second part of this, um, which was just introduced into the Senate, that is, it's a special procedure for passing a bill without the typical requirement that you need 60 votes to cut off debate and proceed to the final vote. So you just go directly to a final vote in which you need a simple majority rather than 60 out of 100. And that's how the Senate is proceeding. That, to complete that process in the Senate, it's going to require that the full reconciliation bill be written. So what we what what has been accepted in the Senate is in a sense, a very broad outline. All right. And then what happens is that the committees of jurisdiction in the Senate are then tasked with the responsibility of writing some language that says this is this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're gonna spend this money. But the fact that the, that the reconciliation bill has now been sent to these committees is a, a big step forward. But notice neither of these pieces have been taken up in the House of Representatives, which is essential. And the Speaker of the House has said that she views them as a package, if you will, that you can't have one without the other. But of course, there are members of the House who feel they haven't had enough input into this. There are members of the House who are not going to like the you know, the, the Senate version exactly. There are members of the Senate who will work to pare down the scale of the bill too. So there's still a lot of places where, I mean, just a lot of potential pitfalls in this. But I would say this, After the American recovery plan was passed early in the Biden administration, which is in March, when I was talking to my colleague, Ed Keene, and I know you've met Ed, uh, and we were saying to Ed, so there's a lot of enthusiasm about getting this infrastructure bill done quickly. And Ed just sort of raised his eyebrows and said, maybe by the end of September, because Ed understands process. And so I think the fact that it's so far taken this long should not be discouraging about to the ultimate outcome. It may take longer than the end of September. It may be into October, but at this point, given the um, fact that Democrats only have 50 votes and therefore any Democratic Senator who says, well, these are my, these are my terms, that person has a tremendous amount of leverage and needs to be attended to. You know, given that, I think so far, I would say that the Democratic leadership in the Senate has managed this extremely well. I'm not saying that that means that there's going to be ultimate success for the Biden administration, but so far it's basically gone according to the Washington script, which is nothing is ever straightforward. It's always a labyrinth. There's always some melodrama at the last minute. Um, It takes longer than you think. And there's always a problem at the, very la- at the very end, even when it'll ultimately you have success. So it's the, the process is also fairly opaque because the negotiations between the lawmakers that is within the house, within the Senate and between the two are mostly not public. So it's enough to make you mad really. Um, now let's, if I may, if I just wanna talk a little bit about the scale of what's what's likely to be passed, may I? Please do, yeah. Sure, so the um, bipartisan bill that passed the Senate is between 500 and $600 billion of new spending. Some people said, oh, it's a trillion point one, no, no, no. Some of that money was already in, built into the baseline of federal spending, especially transportation money. So the new money in this bill for infrastructure is five to $600 billion. In the second bill, which is this sort of human infrastructure bill, um, the proposal from the Biden administration was scaled around three and a half trillion. We don't think that's going to pass. We think that you'll probably get something between two and a half and three trillion when all is said and done so that the ultimate size of the new spending could be three could be a little more could be a little less but it's going to be pared down there's the um, a lot of the debate in the over the next weeks is going to be about the extent to which certain parts of this reconciliation bill can be paid for there are very arcane restraints over how much budget impact a reconciliation bill can have beyond a 10 year horizon. And so there's, people will be tying themselves in knots to make sure that this bill lives within that constraint. And some of the things are going to be pretty um, iffy in my opinion, in terms of the actual revenue that they might produce, but that debate has yet to go. But our view is you'll get five to 600 billion of new spending from the bipartisan bill. And between two and a half and three in the reconciliation bill, that's going to be spent or expended mostly fairly gradually over time because because that's what happens with infrastructure spending. In the United States, most of the public infrastructure is owned by the state and local governments. So, to the extent that the federal government is funding it, the government agencies have to then write guidelines and rules about how the state and local governments can become eligible for the funds and then the state and local governments have to apply or establish their eligibility and only then can you get the money and start you know get out the shovels and the the diggers start doing things
0: so i mean accepting that it will be a little bit less than the 4 trillion that's been proposed even if it's say 3 trillion that's still a fairly sizable amount of money even if spread over, say, eight to 10 years, which I think is in the plan. But in, in your opinion, is that, is that sort of, does that represent a vanity project by the Biden administration, or does it represent spending on uh, projects that will generate real economic value?
1: Well, I think that anything this big has inefficiencies in it. You know, it, it's, not a, it's not an oil painting, it's a deal, it's a political deal. And so there's probably some waste in it but i think that the the us physical infrastructure deficit is very well established about where it is and how much it's going to cost to do something about it and it appears to me that the bipartisan bill addresses that fairly directly now some of the some of the programs that are in this reconciliation bill are not physical infrastructure they have to do with they fund a, t- a child tax credit for low-income families. They fund elder care. They fund a pre-kindergarten preschool uh, nationally. And of course, those may, they, they may, to, may need to build a few new preschool buildings, but it's not mostly physical infrastructure. There is also money spent to either address climate change by mitigations to slow it, and also helping state and local governments um, be, make, make themselves more resilient, physically more resilient to climate change. A lot of that's gonna be fairly experimental. So I can't, I can't say to you that it's all going to improve productivity and, and some of it's never been tried before. So, but, but I do, I do uh, tend to disagree with the idea, label of vanity because the um, these infrastructure needs have been identified over some years by members of both political parties and presidents of both political parties. So I, I don't think of this as being um, in that sense directed towards one party supporters over the others.
0: And you mentioned that in you know, part of this package there are certain measures that are directed towards the environment. That of course is in stark contrast to the Trump administration that was very, uh, you know, very against uh, government policy that um, was pro-environment. Uh, you know, how important is that, do you think, uh, for the future sustainability of the economy, and again for enhancing uh, the productivity debate?
1: If I look at the longer-term projections about the cost of, you can call it climate change or just environmental degradation, it's very clear that those costs haven't been well captured. Because, I mean, you know, it's a classic market failure problem in, um, in, this, in the sense that, you know, no one owns the clean air unless you make them pay for it. People breathing the bad air are paying in the, the sense that their, their health, their, their lifespan um, is being impacted and their costs associated with that. So it's a classic problem of market failure. I think these bills are a, a first step. You know, during the Trump administration, the, the, the progress in terms of governments or just the progress in terms of dealing with the outlook for um, environmental quality and climate change, that was, that was really the responsibility for that sort of shifted to state and local governments and to the private sector, all right? So there wasn't a broad recognition that we don't have to worry about these issues there was a recognition that probably the federal government wasn't going to be pushing it and, or might even be actively working to reverse what the previous administrations had done. But the, the need to deal with climate change or mitigate the impacts of climate change or try to control or reduce carbon em- emissions, that's what, that, that, that was broadly recognized again, state and local levels and by the private sector. And so to, to me, that absolutely makes the case that it's critical, it's essential. And now finally, the the federal government is getting getting in on the act a bit later than it probably should have. The question for the future in the US is this is since this is just really a down payment. So if you if you look at things like the infrastructure deficit, the infrastructure that's vulnerable to climate change and not just along the coasts. Um, it, a lot more investment is gonna be necessary. And so we'll just have to see if the political process in the United States is able to uh, recognize that and come to terms with it. I think that question's up in the air.
0: An opportunity perhaps to debate this subject, to debate inflation, to debate uh, the timing of tapering or indeed when the Fed might raise rates is of course Jackson Hole meeting, the, the symposium that's due in a couple of weeks time. What are your thoughts about what's likely to be on the agenda and what's really likely to capture the mood of the time? So
1: there's going to be a lot of talk about how economies um, untie the knot of lockdowns and what it means for employment, productivity, global trade and prices. But I, I think that the specific issue that a lot of people might have been anticipating, which would be that would Chairman Powell somehow give us a signal about the taper or about rate hikes. Because standing back a few months from here, that is before June, we might've thought, wow, um, by then he'll be able to say something about the taper and there'll be in September, the FOMC will add the year 2024 to the forecast horizon. Are we gonna see rate hikes in that? But I think events have overtaken that. So on the taper, as I said, I think that the, the spread of the, of the Delta variant is going to make it much more difficult for um, Chairman Powell to say something definitive about a taper that we might say, oh, we, now we know they're gonna announce it at the September meeting three weeks later. So I would expect that the chairman would be willing as he has been to acknowledge the progress that's been made. And certainly since the last FOMC meeting, we got that good employment report. And some of the high frequency employment data is also very encouraging. Right? So I'm not I'm not saying he's going to, he'll be a, a pessimist or somehow cast a shadow over the outlook relative to what we thought before, but his ability to um, sort of, shall we say, give a definitive signal, I think that's definitely been undermined by the, the Delta variant spread. Similarly, if we think about the policy projections at the September FOMC meeting, you know, the notorious dots and you know, adding another year to the horizon helps us is gonna help us see something about the way policymakers are thinking. I think that has been somewhat overshadowed by the fact that in the, at the June meeting, the median policy projection for 2023, excuse me, went from zero to one rate hike. So that sort of the cat's out of the bag, if you will. In terms of that, that and so i don't i don't i can't see what's left for for chairman powell to tell us about that obviously it's very important what he says but if i think about the two most the, the two issues on which he might have spoken which are the most interest to, to, to markets i think that he probably can't deliver big news on those
0: well i guess all will be revealed in a couple of weeks time Perhaps we could just turn our attention to Europe for a bit. And, you know, the ECB is a central bank that has explicitly included environmental factors as, as part of its policy debate. And it's made it much more explicit than perhaps uh, uh, any of the other major central banks. Uh, we've also seen recently or heard recently from Governing Council Member and Bundesbank President Jens Wiedemann that he's a bit more concerned about inflation. So it's, it's quite a complicated Policy outlook for the ECB, perhaps perhaps it always is given the political challenges. What are your thoughts on the ECB policy outlook over the next uh, six or 12 months?
1: I'm, I'm reflecting the, the views of my colleague, Jose Aldola, who is our, um, our ECB, our senior ECB analyst. And Jose's view is that when your policy committee is a big kind of un, unruly one, like the FOMC or like the you know, governing council, that it's always an extraordinarily difficult job to balance the, the right that the members have to their, their views with your responsibility to deliver a consensus that they can endorse, even if it's grudgingly. And so if we think about the more hawkish members on the, on the ECB, it's like, it's not a small number. And President Lagarde, I think, has a tough job because it's very clear that she's positioned herself in a much more dovish place than that, where they are. But she has to manage them. Um, so, to me, that means that the the, the risk there is, assuming inflation sort of remains pretty strong, that group which is now not where the consensus is becomes where the consensus is. So that's where we see the risk. We, the, it's. The, the baseline is for rate hikes to come later and gradually. The risk is that that current group, that handful, it's a big handful of participants uh, get the upper hand and um, accelerate that.
0: Mary, we're almost out of time. Before we go, perhaps I could ask you um, what advice would you give to a budding young economist or analyst in today's world? It's a pretty complicated world, pretty different to the, the world that was uh, you know, pre-global financial crisis and pre-COVID. So uh, what words of wisdom would you like to share?
1: This may sound. Um, well, we'll see how it sounds. But so I would make two give two pieces of advice. I would say to the extent you can, and to the extent that you enjoy it continue to study statistics and math. Not because we, we believe models are right, all models are wrong, but because in order to think rigorously, we need to be able to think in a context of math and statistics. The other piece of advice goes along with that, which is that if you want to do good work and if you're interested in the in, in a you know working in a policy environment the best people to ally yourself with are senior people who still get their hands dirty in the data they who understand the da- data the best because that's where the public policy debate is okay and my observations over a long period of time and it, it's been a long time since i was a a young economist is that the people who ended up doing the best work and who and who i think also got the professional recognition really were uh, were able to understand the data defend it when necessary or when they when it needed to be and look for better data when the existing data wasn't good enough And there's there's no magic to that. So align yourself with people who can who can do that. And you'll end up being in a very interesting environment.
0: Mary, with those two very sage pieces of advice, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Time will tell exactly how the inflation debate pans out and when the Fed tapers or doesn't. Uh, And uh, we look forward to having you on again in the future. So thank you very much.
1: Daniel, thanks so much for this opportunity. I appreciate it very much. And if you've got any follow-ups that you want to discuss, um, I'm here. And um, I look forward to seeing you perhaps in person
0: post-COVID. I do hope so. Thanks, Mary. So with that, I'd like to thank Mary once again for her time today. Very insightful uh, views that she shared with us. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Benchmark. And uh, we look forward to, uh, to speaking to you next week.